done a bunch of studies on kind of a increased penetration of solar. And, and really, most of those answers come into a range where they say curtailing renewables is cheaper than having to build a lot of infrastructure like batteries to kind of store the energy and then use it at a later time. Now, there might be other things driving you to build those batteries, and certainly California has has some efforts going in that direction too, to try to build batteries for capacity. But I think most pictures show that they're gonna build resources well ahead of the ability to store. So there's probably gonna be- Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues with experts from around the world. In this episode, I'll be talking to Ben Cuyala, Director of Power Planning for the Northwest Power and Conservation Council based in Portland, Oregon. We'll be discussing the extent to which natural gas should be relied upon as a bridge fuel, as the Pacific Northwest considers the right mix of wind, solar, storage, nuclear, and hydropower to provide carbon-free energy at an affordable and reliable level. So welcome to Energy Talks, Ben. Thank you. Now, a little bit of, uh, we'll kind of set the stage here. Your organization, which is a federal agency uh, created under an act of Congress, uh, is preparing its uh, five-year plan that'll come out uh, next year. And your area that you're dealing with is around the Columbia River, as I understand it, which has 31 hydroelectric dams that produce 22 gigawatts of power and meet 30% of the Pacific Northwest electricity needs. So I got that all of that right? Uh, mostly. So we are actually an interstate compact. Uh, the federal government did form us through a piece of legislation, but we are a combined entity that, that is a cooperation between the states of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana. So we're not exactly a federal agency, although we were enabled by federal legislation. One of those confusing little sort of intricate government things. Oh, you have no idea how confusing it is for a Canadian. <laughs> well, look, uh, Ben, uh, your organization is preparing this regional plan. And I think this is a fascinating topic because uh, federal, uh, uh, national and, and subnational governments around the world are grappling with this issue. And part of it is that if uh, you invest in uh, natural gas combined cycle today in an attempt to bring down uh, GHG emissions, effectively you've committed to a 30 to 50 year investment that asset isn't going to be you know mothballed after 10 or 15 years and that locks you into ghg emissions so is that something that your organization is considering yeah absolutely i i think so we are in the very initial stages of looking at results i should say that everything that we've seen thus far is just very early on in our our planning process so so we continue to dig into the results and and vet things but what we have definitely seen is, of course, you build a new plant and it has multiple impacts in the system. So it adds some capacity for those times where you really need energy and, and it can respond. It's dispatchable to that capacity need. It also tends to displace older natural gas systems. So if you do build a new plant, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're just adding emissions on top of all the existing emissions we have in the system because a brand new plant is way more efficient than an old plant, it tends to run when those old plants would have otherwise. And, and in those cases, it's reducing emissions. But there are some times where you need a lot of plants all together and they're all going to work in concert to meet capacity needs. And then in those times, you would have some increased emissions than maybe alternatives that you could have done otherwise in building a natural gas plant. 
Now, I would imagine that your organization was looking south and uh, looking south to California this summer with the issues that came up with its uh, blackouts and all of the conversation that followed, uh, you know, about the role that renewable energy played in those blackouts. Uh, did, did that influence your thinking at all? Yeah, us and everyone else in the West was certainly looking down to California. Um, I would say that we have always been very kind of cautious about how much we rely on the exchange between the Northwest and California. So when we look at resource adequacy and what we need to do to ensure that we have reliable power in the Northwest, we, we have some limits that we put on what we're willing to take from California or for out of our region, basically. And I think that that just emphasized that practice is something that has always been something common in the Northwest. We tend to have more generation than load. We tend to be a long region where we produce more power than we use. Um, but I think that's, that's clearly something that we're very cautious about. And, and so certainly looking in there and looking at, at, of course, the characteristics of the generation that did put California in that spot, what was happening with imports and exports is something that everybody continues to kind of mull over. Um, the challenge with these things is, of course, there's no right answer. No one knows for sure what exactly went into, you know, the causes. There's, there's root cause analysis. There's a lot of things that people do to try to come up with kind of what, what really brought us to the edge. Um, but I think that there's a lot of factors that you just don't have a black and white answer when you come to this, that there's a lot of things that were going on with that situation and, you know, really high loads, extreme heat, uh, imports and exports were pretty high during that time. So a lot of it was kind of internal problems that they had. Um, but, but there's still stuff that we're learning today and there's stuff that I think we'll continue learning as we right. dissect that event. Now, uh, I picked up on your comment about uh, limiting the amount of uh, power that your region imports. And I know that other uh, Canadian provinces like BC, for instance, uh, are comfortable in the seven to 10% range of their total usage. Is that the kind of range we're talking about for the Pacific Northwest? So what we do is we get together a bunch of experts in, in kind of an advisory committee um, panel. And we say, what, what makes you sort of feel comfortable in terms of the ability to import and export? And, and we're still vetting and running that for our current plan again. But generally, we haven't had a percentage. It's been kind of at what times of the year are we more comfortable and to what level? So it might be, you know, during the off-peak hours, we've always felt like there's more power available. And so we're willing to uh, rely on the ability to import power during the off-peak hours and, you know, basically back off the hydro system so that you can produce more energy internally in the hydro system during the peak hours. And so we have just different limits. It's, it's kind of a, a different level per season and kind of per hour shape that we're doing. And that's something that's very dynamic, you know, with solar coming on in California, it's changing the hours that we think are going to be the ones where there's a lot of available imports. So, so we don't have a percentage per se. We just have kind of a, a expert informed uh, ability to import that, that we build into our models for our analysis. Well, let's talk about California solar because uh, I noticed, and a, a little shout out to our friends at Utility Dive for an excellent article that they did on your planning process and some of the, you know, the issues that your organization is dealing with. It was, uh, that's where I first came across uh, what you're doing. And uh, in, the, in that article, it was mentioned that, you know, cheap uh, California solar might be one of the things that 
the Pacific Northwest West relies upon, well, of course, British Columbia is saying the very same thing. And there's only so much cheap uh, California solar to be had, and only so much, and quite a bit less, I think, from what I gather, that can actually be transmitted out of California. And so uh, all of these competing interests uh, in the various sort of that Western electricity market uh, adds, I would think, another layer of complexity to your job. Yeah, I, I guess I would say it kind of depends on how you see the future playing out in California. Um, I think I, if you've heard of Arnie Olson and E3, they've done a bunch of studies on kind of a increased penetration of solar. And, and really, most of those answers come into a range where they say curtailing renewables is cheaper than having to build a lot of infrastructure like batteries to kind of store the energy and then use it at a later time. Now, there might be other things driving you to build those batteries, and certainly California has has some efforts going in that direction too, to try to build batteries for capacity. But I think most pictures show that they're gonna build resources well ahead of the ability to store. So there's probably gonna be some renewable curtailment during different parts of the day. Um, and if that's the case, then as much as they can not curtail, get the recs and ship the power out, California will be perfectly happy with that result. It, it's kind of based on the policy that they've passed, it's to their advantage to get as much power sunk to load as possible, whether California is the one using it or not. So I, I do think you're right. It comes down to the limits on the transmission system and the ability to kind of ship it out. Um, if you believe the, the sort of build projections that they're, they're putting together in the state agencies down there. Uh, I, not that long ago, I interviewed Professor Lucas Davis, who's an economist at the Haas Energy Institute at Berkeley. And he was saying that, you know, a lot of this uh, electricity, the solar that has get curtailed uh, is because of uh, problems with transmission. There's, you know, regional issues with transmission. And in California, building new transmission capacity is very difficult for environmental reasons and permitting reasons. It takes a long time. It's very expensive. And so, you know, there's a very good chance that some of the solar will be trapped anyway, just by trans transmission issues. So the, uh, not sure entirely where I'm, I'm going with this, thought I'd just point that out that there's it's kind of another angle on this. But let's, but you did mention batteries uh, in the California context. So let's talk about it in the Pacific Northwest context. Uh, what role do you expect batteries to play uh, in your power system going forward? That's a really complicated problem in a system that has a lot of hydro. So you've got obviously some innate ability to store power and to produce power at a different time. So how batteries complement that is something that we continue to be working on. And I don't think we've got a full picture of it yet. We're still trying to refine um, our approach to how you do reserves, how you do flexibility, how you, how you deal with all those things. And I think that what you're looking for is how can batteries be complementary to the hydro system? And that's, that's a pretty big and really dynamic question, one that is not easy to answer. So I, I would say that batteries probably, if you're looking at a future where you're not going to build natural gas, it seems clear that batteries have some sort of role or some sort of storage has a role, whether it's batteries or pump storage or something else. Um, but I, I still think that figuring out when and to what extent you bring them into our system is going to be complicated. It's something that we are, are working on. And I'll tell you, I don't have a simple answer for you on that one right now. Uh, and, and fair enough. I mean, batteries have really only entered the conversation in the last oh, 12 to 18 months, let's say. And 
And a lot of that is driven by the, the really dramatic decreases in cost in lithium ion and the uh, dramatic costs that are being forecast between now and, and 2030. I think we're talking about uh, just with battery packs, EV battery packs from $137 a kilowatt hour today to maybe as low as $57 a kilowatt hour by 2030. I mean, that's a tremendous decrease and would, and would make, I would assume, uh, batteries more attractive for organizations uh, like yours that are doing this kind of planning. I wanna talk about uh, an issue that I find fascinating, and that is how planners like yourself and, and your organization uh, take into account electrification or climate policy, especially climate policy that depends on extensive electrification. So again, going to the British Columbia example, estimates there say that if the climate policies of the current government, if their targets are met, by 2050, it could mean a doubling and perhaps a tripling of power consumption in the province. And that would be a tremendous amount of new generation. And I would assume, because this is the, you know, we're talking about the west, the, the western part of the US, where climate is a big issue, that similar kinds of policies uh, must are likely in place in the states that, uh, that you serve. Yeah, I think there's some active conversations going on in the state of Washington. The governor's got an agenda on electrification. I think the city of Seattle has some things going on as well. Um, and, and I think there's been similar conversations in Oregon and some of the other states too. Um, so, so yes, it's, a, it's definitely something that we are watching. I will say our projection, of course, is if you, if you change from natural gas being a used for space heating, especially, um, but some of the other commercial uses as well, like uh, commercial cooking or things like that. It, it's an immense electric load for sure. I, I think that when you look at buildings and the way that they could add load into the grid, certainly if you change over new construction, I mean, you've got stock turnover, so it takes a little while. As, as you remove buildings and you add new ones, then that builds maybe a little bit slower, but it adds an extra sort of increment to the electric load that could really build to a pretty a pretty amazing sort of pace of, of electrification. Um, and then if you go and you start retrofitting buildings and you, you take out natural gas infrastructure and you add an electric, that would be a whole nother level, of course, of um, increasing electric load. So I, I think it is definitely something that could have a huge impact on electric load. It's something that we are we're looking at again. Um, climate is something that that is going to be underlying most of our work. and. A, Again, since in the Northwest, we tend to have to worry about hydro a lot. It's another thing that is impacted by climate change. We see, uh, at least in the sort of initial studies that have been done in the Northwest about climate change, we see an increase in generation in the winter from the hydro system and then a decrease in the summer. And so that kind of changes the dynamics of what we've been traditionally used to seeing come from the generation on the hydro system. And you have to take that into account as well when you're looking at, okay, well, heating load would of course increase winter load. Um, but I think that's still going to be a pretty complex thing. But if you really start aggressively going after what is currently served by natural gas, it's just gonna build beyond our current generation fleet, no doubt. Now, while we're on the subject of policy and regulation, the utility dive argument uh, article made a very interesting point, and that is uh, within the regulatory uh, landscape, in particularly in Washington, which is a little more aggressive than Oregon, 
and uh, and the other two states in in your uh, in your group. Uh, regula an uncertain regulatory landscape makes financing of new natural gas fire plants more difficult because you don't know if it's a 30 to 50 year investment. If you're not certain that that plant will be around to recover its costs and be profitable, uh, you're less likely to invest in it. So does that regulate, has the regulatory regime in the, in the states vis-a-vis -vis natural gas, has, has that come up in your considerations? Yeah, absolutely. I will say we did our best to collect, not just in internally in the Northwest, but throughout the entire West, what is the sort of current projection, the goals, the targets, um, looking at where it's possible to build new natural gas plants. And it's not just about regulation. So, I mean, I think a lot gets laid at the feet of regulators or state legislators, but there's a lot of corporations out there with similar corporate policies, and we tried to do our best to grab that as well. So, in our region, for example, Idaho Power is in Idaho. It doesn't have a regulation saying that it's not going to build gas plants, but Idaho Power, being the main utility, has a goal to be carbon-free by 2050. And so, even when you look at the sort of the aggregate of the regulations and the sort of corporate goals and the ways that people are putting things out, it does seem like it's going to be really hard for people to build new natural gas plants um, in in the entire West. So there's there's just a few places that you could anticipate maybe seeing a couple. Northwestern in Montana, one of our states as well, does have a in its IRP I think some some plans for building gas. Certainly, there seems like there's some potential in Wyoming or maybe Utah, but, but it's pretty limited across the West. Um, want to talk about uh, offsets because I understand the Washington Clean Energy Transformation Act requires that all electricity sold in that state to be greenhouse gas neutral by 2030, but it allows offsets, emissions offsets, credits. Uh, yeah. what, will, what role will offsets play uh, in your plan going forward? So especially in that case, I think it's a pretty narrow set of things you can use for those offsets. It's not just get online and find a carbon offset sort of that you can buy as if you're a, a business traveler and wanting to offset your, your plane sort of emissions. Um, so in, in that case, one of the main things you can use is the RECs that are created by the RPS generation. So I think it, it creates an extra sort of um, pressure on the REC market to have more RPS qualified generation that basically can use to retire those recs so that you can continue having that kind of carbon neutral emissions. And, and that's probably going to be the, the most common, I think, element that they would go after. So the end result is, of course, you have more renewable generation being added into the system because you want more of those recs to be able to both qualify for the RPS requirements, but also offset the um, existing system if you have to continue doing emissions at 2030. Now, over the last couple of months, I've been doing a, quite a few interviews with economists and utility uh, policymakers around uh, electricity markets. And it's a very hot topic these days uh, because those uh, jurisdictions, um, Alberta in, in Canada and a number of uh, American states and to a certain extent in Europe, uh, have markets and they're operating efficiently to a greater or lesser degree. There's been all sorts of lessons learned and, and still much more fine tuning to go. And regional electricity markets has become again a hot topic lately. 
So there is already regional markets uh, in your area, and I know because BC and, and Alberta are, are part of those. Is there any part of your plan that includes expanding uh, those markets and further the developing them and you know, bringing in different types of markets to fill in gaps in the current uh, regime? Yeah, I mean, like, so we're, we're focused on long-term planning. So obviously markets tend to be about short-term operations. Um, but we want to get a, a good sort of proxy for a question of, well, what would the long-term planning look like if you had more efficient markets? And so we, we have some ways that we're trying to kind of emulate what would happen in the West if you did have a more efficient market that we're going to be working with in our planning. Um, and a really good example of kind of one of the things that we will do to, to look at a potential direction of a result for this is each utility has what they call kind of a planning reserve margin. And they say, we need to build for our peak load plus some percentage. And that makes sure that we have enough generation in our system so that we can meet, meet our peak load and we're very comfortable about that. And if our forecast is wrong, you know, we've got extra generation to make sure that we meet that peak. And one of our kind of our theories is in an organized market, one that's very effective, you might be able to lower that planning reserve margin. And so when we do our forward forecast of what people need to build to meet their sort of load and make sure that they have an adequate system, one way that we'll kind of examine markets is to say, well, what if you could lower that margin that they're building for and kind of share that across the entire system because people are cooperating and, and it just reduces the need to build new resources, um, provide some diversity as well. And so that's an example of one of the things that we're kind of thinking is directional. Um, but of course, any specific market is so detailed that I think to, to say this is an organized market and this is not and just be able to do a scenario and say this is what it would be, it, it doesn't work because every organized market I know of has different rules of engagement, different ways they're set up and, and kind of different um, secondary markets, whether it's for ancillary services or capacity or things like that. And the details matter a lot in terms of what you would project would happen in terms of planning. So, so I think the best we can do is kind of say, well, here's some things that an organized market could have an impact on and we'll, we'll look directionally in those areas. I interviewed uh, after the, the summer blackouts, I interviewed uh, Severin Bordenstein, who's a, an economist at uh, Berkeley and uh, also sits on the board of the California Independent System Operator. So kind of a unique perspective that he has. And he's a big proponent of demand management. So allowing utilities to go in and turn people's air conditioning uh, down so they use ele electricity when there's high demand, that sort of thing. And uh, that kind of demand management, uh, he says, is being enabled to a large degree with the new technologies that are coming on, on board uh, in uh, power grid uh, operation. And I'm wondering the extent to which those kinds of technologies are playing into your planning process. Yeah, we, we always start with a um, world where we have a potential for demand response um, or demand management as you're talking about it and a potential for um, conservation or energy efficiency. And so in, in our planning, we make sure that we've got basically a supply curve saying this is what you could get. And of course, it's an estimate and it's our best guess, but we get a bunch of people together who work with demand response in our region. And we say, what are the types of programs you're seeing out there? What is something you think is possible for our region? And, and we collect all that together. How much do you think you could get? 
you know, limit the penetration, try to try to understand kind of how quickly people could get it. We, we have a lot of estimates that we put into it, but, but generally we collect kind of what we think is a good potential and kind of a pace at which we could build it in our region. And we use that very much in our planning to understand kind of how it could play into the system. Um, and demand response in our last power plan was a great resource. It, it provided capacity in a system where you had a lot of surplus energy, but you needed capacity. Um, when you're building a lot of renewables, that tends to be the way the system's going, um, especially be prior to retiring a lot of traditional, sort of more traditional thermal generation. You will have a system with a lot of energy in it, and you need capacity, and demand response is an excellent resource for that. And so we did see a very strong signal in our last plan, and we continue to see in this plan a strong signal that if you need something where you, you really do need just that peak energy, you need it infrequently, um, because, of course, our system, depending on the water year, can have a very different amount of hydro generation in it. And so it might be in a really wet year, you know, we're not going to use these programs at all, but we want to make sure that they're available for that dry year. And, and I think it's shown a lot of value because it's it's not super expensive to build. It's, it's way cheaper than building a, you know, peaking gas plant and letting it sit there for, you know, 10 years because you've got good water without ever being used. That's a really expensive proposition. Demand response has some kind of, it's less of a carrying cost, and it also has the ability to kind of scale it up and scale it down. So you can, as you see the need, kind of go out and add people into programs. So there's a lot of value there, and I think there's a really strong signal for it. Um, but it, it's hard to do because, again, you might go 10 years and never use it or never need it because you just don't have the hydro conditions to demand it. So it also takes kind of utilities investing in something and, and working with the regulators to understand that this is a, a useful program. It's kind of an insurance policy, but it's not something that you're going to see dispatch every single year, other than to make sure that you continue to maintain the capability of the program. Uh, final question, uh, Ben. Uh, I've also been doing a fair number of interviews on uh, electrical utility uh, re-engineering. Uh, this is being driven by new technologies and by distributed energy, so rooftop solar. And utilities are finding that they're, they need to change their business model to be com more, uh, remain competitiveness, competitive, sorry, uh, as we move forward in this, you know, brave new world that we're, that we're entering. And I'm wondering the extent to which the utilities within your area are going through that kind of process. Um, I'm not sure that that's as much of something that I would see in the Northwest. I, at least I haven't heard of it. You'd have to talk to the utilities directly in our, our region to see if they're, they've got some ideas on it. But I think it's it's sort of a something you see in California with the, the community choice aggregators and things like that that are kind of putting pressures on the utility. It, it's not a phenomenon that we necessarily see in the Northwest right now. So, and, and again, remember the Northwest has a huge number of public utilities, which is, it's a kind of different than California as well and some of the other areas in the West, because a lot of those utilities are, are run by local boards that have kind of no profit motivation and just a different world that, that they work in. And so I think more than anywhere else in, in the West or frankly in the country, we, we tend to have a lot of public power covering our territory, although we certainly do have investor owned utilities as well. But, but it's just a different equation here. I, I don't know that that's as much a pressure as you would see in some of the other areas. Yeah, they, the studies that I've read say that the, this particular issue 
uh, depends a lot on the particular circumstances of the region and the history of, of, of the, the power grid and, and utilities. And everybody starts at, at a different place and evolves at a different pace in a different direction uh, based on you know, where they started. So that makes perfect sense what, you're, what you've just described. Ben, thank you very much for this. This has been a fascinating insight into uh, what your region and your organization, all the variables that they have to juggle to make a power grid uh, both decarbonized eventually and also reliable and, and affordable uh, still will always be a big consideration. We really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us about it. Thanks for having me. It was fun.